Hi there. Do you have your headphones on to hear this immersive audio production? It'll sound so much better. Under a nearly full moon, the Syria crashed against a reef in the South Pacific Ocean in 1884. When I close my eyes, I can almost see her, this gray and white sailing ship rolling and pitching, surrounded by an angry sea. 540 souls on board. Most of the people on the ship couldn't swim, and some saw land in the distance and started to jump into the water, hoping, thinking that they may be able to walk to the shore. When rescue boats get there a day and a half later, the ship looks dismembered. Bits of spars, sails, ropes, and debris in wild confusion. The front half of the ship is up on the reef, the back half perching delicately. Here's Dr. William McGregor, head of the rescue. The scene was simply indescribable, and pictures of it haunt me still like a horrid dream. People falling, fainting, drowning all around one. The cries for instant help uttered in an unknown tongue, but emphasized by looks of agony and the horror of impending death depicted on dark faces, rendered ashy gray by terror. Then again, the thundering, irresistible wave breaking on the riven ship, still containing human beings. Some crushed to death into debris, and the others wounded and imprisoned therein. Some sacrificed their lives to save others. 57 people lose their lives, 32 men, 15 women, five girls, three boys, and two babies. And as for the rest, they're... Shipwrecked in a place to which they had come by accident, but from which they could not escape. They are in Fiji, Ramnikdweep, the island of paradise. Welcome to Scrolls and Leaves, a podcast featuring stories from the margins. We're in season one, Trade Winds, set in the Indian Ocean world. I'm Gayathri Vaidhanathan. And I'm Mary Rose Abraham. Would you like more scrolls and leaves in your life? We have bonus episodes and other perks for supporters. Head over to scrollsandleaves.com support to learn how to give as little as 75 rupees or a dollar a month. Your support means that we can continue to create this podcast. Thank you. In 1833, England ended African slavery and then found the former slaves would much rather not work on plantations, even if given a salary. They have to be replaced. But by whom? Between 1833 and 1917, more than a million Indians traveled on ships to British colonies to fuel the economic engines of empire. They were called Girmithias. This is their tale. You'll hear from Bridge Law, a descendant of the Girmithias. He's a historian of the Pacific Islands and his influence on an entire generation of scholars has been simply enormous. He has so many awards that I can't list them all. He's a member of the Order of Australia and an officer of the Order of Fiji. And in 1997, he literally helped rewrite the Constitution of Fiji. And then there was a military coup. The Constitution was canceled and he was expelled for life. I suppose the most difficult part is not being able to say the final farewell to friends, you know, who were part of my life, family members who have gone. You'll also hear from Umith Bali, 
an Indo-Fijian Australian stand-up comedian whose work draws on a sense of displacement. I identify as, um, I don't know, I, I don't know. I don't identify as someone who's just trying to freaking take it one day at a time. This is episode five. My home is in my heart. Chapter one, the search. Bridge Lal is early, too early. It's 5.30 in the morning and someone's told him the bus will leave on the dot at six. But we're in India in 1978. You know that joke about Indian Standard Time? When I went to the bus stop, uh, there was not a single soul there. It was like a huge warehouse. And so I thought I might have come to the wrong place. Bridge is a PhD student from Fiji. And the bus? Well, that will take him into the countryside in Uttar Pradesh. He's going to his grandfather's village, his native place. It's in a district called... Baraik? Baraich. Baraich. It's Baraich, yeah. Bridge gets a window seat. At 7, the bus starts. At 7.15, the bus stops. The driver gets off and eats a leisurely breakfast. Bridge is dressed a bit uh, formally for these parts, in trousers and a shirt. Everyone was wearing pagri and dhoti and all the older folks chewing betel nut and aiming missiles of spit across the window, spraying on me, but I was too polite to, to say no because, I mean, they would say, saab kya hai? Kuch ho gaya to kya hai? Chalta hai. Yeah, you, you get, get used to that rhythm, to that um, way of thinking and move on. The bus rattles past flat green fields of wheat and paddy, mango trees, kids running around barefoot. As Bridge gets closer to his village, I was anxious, I was anxious, I was anxious because I was the first one in my family ever to go to India. So as I was closer to Bairaj, I was filled with anxiety. What would I encounter? As I entered the, uh, the compound, walking on, on cow dung and you know, all that, word went around that a strange man was coming to the village. And when they saw me, um, they were curious, and very soon the whole village got together. Who is this man? Why is he coming here? So I told the purpose of my visit. I knew that many years ago, a young man by this name had gone away to a tapu. Tapu is an island, and he never came back. Does anyone know who this person was, if he has any relatives here? Chapter 2, Drought Hey, are you lost? We're still in Beraich, but it's 70 years earlier, 1907. Here's Bridges' grandfather, or Aja. His name is Mangre Lal. I don't know precisely what he's up to at this moment, but let's imagine him walking on a dusty road into town. He was a very tall man, very, very tall man, um, well-built, and apparently he was a stick fighter. People could throw stones at him from any angle, and he would use the stick to fend off the stones. And apparently he was a very accomplished sarangi player. Sarangi is Indian violin. The land is so dry. Not that long ago, the fields were green. The jungles full of leopards, tigers, wolves, wild hogs, antelope. But since 1891, the rains have failed again and again. In 91, 97, 99, 1901, 04, 05, 07. Diaspora and the Difficult Art of Dying. 
in the end is my memory of the beginning a mixed brew of history and hyperbole the sun's chakra breaking up the earth of basti into 6 million jigsaw pieces and the bow tree catching fire at midnight by itself and the coils pecking out the eyes of brinda the milch cow and pitaji standing among the ruined fields of chana weeping and maji bent over the inflated moons of roti weeping because he wept and the immemorial debt to a greasy man of crisp dhoti and caste mark whom we called maiba and my sister nudging the age of dowry and i the eldest of three sons 16 years old and already corroded by despair stealing away from home and village and province never once looking at the moon grazing on the thatch of my nostalgia walking by night and sleeping by day until rivers no longer gave up their names nor roads their destinations how many times i yearned to return to my village ask me how many times my legs faltered during that terrible flight but then i remembered the scorpions cracklings in the wells of pasti and the minas dying in the skies of pasti and that nightmare drove me towards i knew not where maybe i sought to work in a modest village maybe i desired to fall off the edge of the world maybe i was questing for ayodhya shangrila eldorado this poem is by fijian poet sudesh mishra millions of people are leaving to escape drought and in search of work in the jute mills in calcutta the tea gardens in assam the coal mines of bihar and even across the black ocean the kalapani to mauritius British Guyana, Trinidad, Jamaica, West Indies, Natal, Suriname, Fiji, Malaya, Sri Lanka, Burma. So Ajaz reached town. He goes to the district police station. He met a recruiter. They asked him questions about what he was doing and whether he would like to make some money, whether he would like to go to this fabulous place called Fiji Ramnik Dweep. He puts his thumbprint on an agreement. Agirmit. This moment here, it's important. I think possibly the most important of Aja's life. He's transforming. He's become Agirmitia. He'll work in the British colonies abroad for five years. The authorities examine and certify him. We have examined and passed the above-named man as fit to immigrate. That he's free from all bodily and mental disease, and that he has been vaccinated since engaging. has appeared before me and has been engaged by me on behalf of the government of Fiji as willing to proceed to that country to work for hire The new year's dawn and it's now 1908 Ajaz in a depot in Calcutta waiting He's tempted to go back to Berich to his family his plot of land his language caste culture everything that's familiar but is eaten the recruiter's salt Hum namak haram nahi hai He's no traitor. He says five years will go like five minutes. And didn't Lord Ram spend fourteen years in exile? Chauda baras Ram ban basi. On February 18, Aja climbs aboard the ship SS Sangola. 
He finds himself a tiny space in the cramped quarters. I get a kick out of the names of these shifts. Leonidas, Pericles, Ganges, the ill-fated Syria, of course, which wrecked off Fiji 24 years before Aja's trip. Such beautiful names for vehicles of a perilous voyage. The Gurmithias call them... Floating funeral processions. One day on the ship, a man of a high caste hides a potato. He doesn't want his food touched by the lower castes. The ship's officers find out and put the potato in his mouth, and they march him back and forth on deck, to much amusement. The old ways can't survive the Kalapani, or black waters. What Kalapani meant, uh, metaphorically, was the rapture of one world from which the migrants had come. There was no going back. All the caste and customs and traditions could not survive in the cabins of these ships, and most certainly not on the plantations. It's on these ships that the Gurmithias first falls sick, sick with longing for home. Here's Sudesh Mishra, who wrote the poem you heard before. One gets sick at sea, but that sickness never goes away because you're displaced forever from Matabumi, your motherland. So you basically carry that sickness with you and the only way to be rid of it is if you actually die into the Vanua, that is the new land, which you have to accept and it has to accept you. It works both ways, yeah? After three long months, Aja arrives in Fiji. Chapter 3, Seasick. Fiji is a picture postcard paradise, 333 volcanic islands scattered in the South Pacific Ocean. Breathtaking. Deep rivers, soaring mountains covered in lush tropical plants, white beaches, and a fierce island people ruled by the white man. It is the inverse of the Indian plains. A lot of people, when they got off ships, they kissed Mother Earth, glad to be back on land. The Gurmithias are assigned to sugar plantations run by the Colonial Sugar Refining Company. If I say bonded labor, what do you think of? Yeah, it's way worse than that. There's seemingly a dozen ways to die. Women are raped. Children get cholera. People are whipped by their supervisors. Some hang themselves. They drown crossing rivers. They die of heartbreak. But Aja is lucky. Here he is on a plantation with a supervisor who's actually a good guy. Aja is tending to horses because he worked with animals back in India. This is one of the better jobs. And after five years of labor, as promised, he's free. If he wants, he can go back to India. But hey, is life ever that simple? My grandfather went to Fiji as a single man. He became very friendly with the man who was married. And things didn't work out. And so she left with my grandfather, with the three young children. Remember talking about the early 20th century. When I look at my grandma, and I knew her when she was, uh, uh, by then she had lost her mind, more or less. But she was a very strong woman, in the sense of going and living with my grandfather, bearing him two more children, working in the fields, raising a family. And if you look at women during indenture and after indenture, the amount of work they did in the fields, hoeing cane, planting rice, making sure that there was food on the table for children. And I think this is what I talk about, how strong-willed these women were. 
I feel that is something that legacy has passed on down the generations. Ajas leased some land from the island people. He's planted peanuts and rice and vegetables. He's settling into the land, the vanua as the islanders call it. He has kids who also work the land, and later, grandkids. His favorite is the middle one, Bridge. But as life's pursuits end, his thoughts return to childhood. In his 80s, Aja has a massive handlebar mustache, a long white beard, and he usually hangs out on a stringed bed under a huge mandarin tree. I remember him very well when some other Girmetiers would come home, smoke hookah, and talk in a language no one understood, um, their village dialect. And sometimes they would get very emotional. They'd sing bhajans and other folk songs which we didn't understand. They also kept themselves culturally alive through music, the reading or recital of Ramayana, festivals. For folk people, for ordinary peasants, it was holy, uh, pagua. Pagua was a time when people let their hair down or whatever was left of it. You know, get drunk and maybe merry and so on. And that's where Aja gets stuck in his old age, in his memories of home. He tells stories about Bairaj to his grandson Bridge, who's sleeping next to him the morning he passes away in 1962. Chapter 4. Displacement. We're in a dark room. That hum you hear? It's a large computer. It's 1977. And that's Bridge over there. He's 25 years old. He's going through pages and pages of lists of Girmatias. It's for his history PhD. When he was looking for a topic to research, he thought of Aja and the grizzled old Girmatias back home. Well, I think to understand the background of the Igrimitias, one had to understand who they were. And each person who migrated to Fiji and to other places had his or her emigration pass. On that pass was given the date of migration, the ship on which the person went, the number the person had on the ship, the person's name, the person's next of kin, the person's caste name, the person's sex, and those sorts of things, and the person's thumb imprint at the bottom to say that he or she understood the terms of the agreement. And those passes are preserved in hard copy in the archives in Fiji. Sometime in the 1970s, under the Australian Joint Copying Project, all of these things were microfilmed. And microfilmed copies of emigration passes, suicide registers, plantation registers, and a whole range of other things is available in several places. New Zealand, several libraries in Australia, and so on. So there were 45,439. I remember these figures very well. They had come from North India, right? There, there, there they were. There they were and on microphone. And so I coded all these variables, not the names because names don't matter, but caste, age, sex, district of origin, district of registration, the year of migration, the number and so on. And then in this dimly lit room in the basement of the National Archives of Australia in Canberra, I reduced them to numbers, 45,000 of them. 
seven days a week sometimes, for seven months continuous. It was just really, really, uh, uh, no one had ever done that and people would be foolish to try it again. I can tell you that much. But then I, I did it and I used, I mean, those days, you're, you're not talking about PCs. There was one huge humming Univac computer in a whole room. And so I then used a particular program called SPSS, Statistical Package for Social Scientists. And I then coded the data, put that through the, the system. Thousands of pages came out. So I knew exactly how many came from which district over how many years, which cars, which sex, how many married. I mean, the whole detail, right? And so my thesis was in two volumes. Second volume is just tables, tables and tables and tables, year by year. So I got a very, very fine picture of, of who these people were. And the interesting thing is, when I look back upon it now, or even a few years later after I finished my PhD, in a way I felt good that these Girmetiers were not merely numbers. They were my people. They were my people. And I was paying homage to them by looking at each and every of the emigration passes. Sometimes there would be a death on the ship. You just... Tears. I mean, what do you do? You see, this person's life has ended before it began, and they would wrap their bodies in in white cloth, and then, in the deep uh, dark of, of night, throw them overboard into into the sea. Uh, or a child was born, and a new life began. And in the end, I mean, the the result of that work was I demonstrated absolutely irrefutably who these people were. They're not all riffraffs and flotsam and jetsam of humanity that colonial officials made them out to be. These were a fair representative cross-section of Indian community migrating because of deteriorating circumstances in the 19th century. After his computer analysis, Bridge goes to India in 1978 for the first time, and that's where we left him, remember? He's inquiring about his grandfather. My Aja left for an island a long time ago. Does anyone know him? Nobody knew, except an old woman, must have been, I don't know, 200 years old, sitting in a hovel you know, in a distance. She saw the village surrounding me crowding, and she said, What is happening? And somebody said, oh, this man has come and is looking for his ancestors or his Aja. And then she came to me slowly and, and we talked. Then she remembered. Ham janit hai. I know. In, in, in the Bhojpuri, right? Ham janit hai. She said, yes, there was a young man who had left. Uh, and he never came back. Then she mentioned to me, so-and-so is my relative. That so-and-so, as he approached me, he sobbed uncontrollably. And his son, who would be my cousin, he touched my feet in respect. And we cried. I mean, I also cried. It was a very emotional, intensely emotional experience. When I saw him cry, I realized that my journey began here, in, in a sense. He said, no, I think you should come back. Uh, there's a school here, you can teach our children here, and we can all live together again as one happy family. 
And I knew in my heart of heart then that much moved as I was by that experience. India was not my country. It was my grandfather's land, not mine. And that realization tore me apart, really. I understood Indian culture. I grew up with Indian culture in Fiji. I, I loved Hindi music. We saw Hindi movies. But I could not really identify with, with, with the place in a way that was expected, I suppose. And it was there I realized I was a Fijian. So I said goodbye to them. Some little girl, apparently in my extended family, was getting married. And so I contributed my share, in quotes, to the expenses. And then I left. Bridge can now let India go. He can now accept he is from Fiji. But Fiji cannot be his. Chapter 5. Displacement Redux. Now, we need to tell you a backstory about Fiji politics. We'll be quick, we promise. When the British leave Fiji in 1970, Indians make up almost half the population on the islands. But they don't really mix with the islanders. You see, a hundred years ago, the British had kept the Indians and islanders in separate racial compartments. It sort of made sense back then. They wanted to preserve indigenous culture, which is tied to the idea of land or of vanua. Indians can't own land in Fiji. Here's Sudesh. So the Fijians were not really consulted about this moment in history. Right? The British unilaterally introduced Indians to Fiji. So you can see the indigenous perspective as well, that it's not as if they consented to it. And then what happened was because you have a group of peasants who are having wrenched from their village economies and put into the plantation agriculture. Uh, the moment they were freed from that system, they understood they didn't have any land and uh, the country wasn't theirs. So they had to very quickly decide what they're going to do with their offsprings. And the thing that Indo-Fijians latched onto was education. By the 1980s, the kids and the grandkids, the next generation, are visibly better off than many islanders. They become doctors, lawyers, and begin to occupy important spots in government. When I was growing up, all the, all the solid houses, the visible wealth seemed to be with the Indians, whilst the Fijians were in the villages. So at some point, you know, this was going to actually create a problem if you have this kind of imbalance in social progression. Then, the unthinkable happens. In elections in 1987, the ruling party, supported largely by islanders, is voted out of office and replaced by a coalition supported largely by Indo-Fijians. That government lasts for all of a month, and then there's a coup by the military, and the government is overthrown. Fiji's coup culture began back in 1987. Colonel Sidavani Rambuka staged two of them with the aim of asserting ethnic Fijian dominance over Indian Fijians. I believe it is in the national interest that I carry out the events of this morning, the takeover of the government. All that was code for one single event, the accession to power for the first time in 20 years of a Labour-dominated coalition, led by this man, Timoteo Bavandra. When Bavandra won his election and brought seven Indians into his cabinet, 
indigenous Fijians took to the streets. When I was three years old, I was a baby, so they're carrying me for shelter because what was happening was a lot of uh, islanders were like um, breaking into homes and looking for Indians to bash. That's Umit Bali. He's a 35-year-old Indo-Fijian-Australian stand-up comedian who's become something of a celeb after being a finalist on Australia's Got Talent. His mom's told him about the coup. But it was not all the animals, because my mom said they got refuge in uh, the home of another Fijian family. You know, there were some Fijians that would hide Indians and keep them safe, protect them. It was weird. It's like everyone got along really, really well. But there was like this thing of like, if a coup happens, you know, the guy that was really nice to you the other day might want to kill you or rape your sister or something else like that. So I grew up knowing that there are good Fijians. And then there are okay Fijians, and then there are really bad Fijians. And then, but you always have to be on your guard. In 1990, the Fijian constitution is rewritten to strip Indians of all political rights. Omit told us what daily life was like for Indo-Fijians. Picture the capital, Suba, a sleepy island city with a live wire running right under it. I remember lots of pigeons at the bus stall. You go to the bus stall and there's like all these buses lined up and you pick the bus that you had to go in. You go in, you give the bus driver 40 cents. But if you miss that, you have to walk all the way into the city. We call it a city, but really it's like an overglorified town. Every building was like two story, three story, four stories, and that would be the cutoff point. You know, if you, know, and if you find a building with eight stories, ooh, watch out, look at, you know, woo. Uh, and then you walk through a lot of cars smoke coming out of the back of them. I remember I used to get behind a bus or a car and all the kids would stick their head out the window and smell the fumes. You know, it was a really nice smell. Um, I'm not kidding, it was a really good smell, you know. But then later on, we found out, you know, it killed you. Umit's family, like most Indo-Fijians, was very Indian. You know, they'd go to the temple, watch Bollywood movies. This is all in the 90s, of course. All the Indian movies we had were pirated copies. So you'd also get, like, Hindi ads in the movies. If you meet someone that's my age, that's from Fiji, that used to watch Indian movies, you could just say to him, Chandu Bam, Chandu Bam, and then we'll finish it by going, Pirahari Bam. What a strange series of events. Families like Umits are so Indian, and yet they haven't set foot in India since their great-grandparents. The Girmidias suffered on the plantations, and then they adopted a new homeland where they were considered an inferior race. And then, in a strange reversal of power, their children and grandchildren begin ruling the nation. And then they're kicked out. Since 1987, almost half the Indians on the island have emigrated. They've gone mostly to Australia, New Zealand, US, Canada, places where most everyone's an immigrant of some vintage. Some have gone for studies. Others have relatives who sponsor them. And some have found more troubling routes. The goal is to escape poverty 80% of the time. Then the 20% of it is because sometimes, you know, things would be going really, really well. And then there's a coup and everything's screwed up. When I was growing up, I had all these cousins that'd be like turning to 18, 19 age. And all of a sudden, like these white people would come um, to the village. I'm, I was like nine, 10 years old, but I could tell they were weirdos. So I remember this one old dude coming to marry one of the girls in that village. And she was like, beautiful 18-year-old, 19-year-old, and this guy was like 65, you know, and he, he had this shake constantly. He would not stop shaking, remember? <laughs> and, and she was Amin and Ari, she was like, I don't know what to marry. And her mom was like, you have to hurry. I think we might die too next week. <laughs> it's like Chris Hansen, How to Catch a Predator, really, but like uh, ethnic version. 
When Umet was 13, his family went to Australia on a tourist visa and just stayed on. And it was really, really tough, hiding from immigration and all that. Umit was working in retail to take care of his family. I was working six nights a week and I was doing it to provide for my family. A moment came where my boss was really mean to me. Every time I come into work, he would just take a baseball bat, figuratively speaking, and just smash my knees. You know, tell me everything I did wrong. We're not even talk about one thing I did right. Just tell me how I stuffed this up, this up, this up, this up, this up. That was going on for a couple of months, but this, this, this time, it just made me go, there's got to be more than like just surviving like this, you know? I think it was just, I felt lost. I just needed to know where I came from or what I, what I, where was the point of all this. And I think like when you're someone who is searching for answers or someone who is desperate or someone who is defeated, that's when religion becomes, you want to know if there's more perhaps. And I found the Hare, Hare Krishnas. Then I bought a book and I listened. And then I went to an ashram and I hung out with the other devotees there. And then I went to eat some food at Govinda's restaurant. And, um, and then I went to a couple of kirtans. As I listened to him, I was reminded of Aja and the Grimithias sitting under a tree singing Kirtans, longing for home. So that's the backstory. We're now in 1995. Bridge is a well-known scholar and prominent critic of the government. And Fiji's constitution is up for review. This happens every seven years. Given his reputation, the leader of the opposition asks him to help rewrite it. The result? An 800-page document that states, Multiracial societies ought to strive for multiracial governments, that all groups should have the right to share power. But remember that live wire running beneath Sua? In 2006, there's another coup, and Bridges' constitution is cancelled. I took a very strong stand. As a former constitutional commissioner, as someone who had spent his entire life studying the history of our people, someone who had seen so many opportunities missed to take Fiji in a new direction, I took a strong stand, basically saying that coups never solve problems and, and that we should strive for dialogue, discussion. And the military uh, did not like my narrative. So they banned me for life in 2009. A couple of months later, they banned my wife. So we have been living, expelled for life, all these years in Australia. How did that make you feel? I don't know. I don't think anger is part of it, but a certain sense of sadness. Sadness that this is such an archaic way of dealing with legitimate democratic dissent in a world of galloping globalization, of porous national boundaries, this age of travel and technology that does not respect those boundaries. Do you miss Fiji? Uh, I suppose the most difficult part is not being able to say the final farewell to friends you know, who were part of my life, family members who have gone. That's where I was born. That's where my parents are buried. That's where my earliest memories were formed. That ancient urge to connect at the moment of departure, um, it's not going to happen, but there's nothing that I can do. It's similar to how it was for your grandfather, perhaps. Well, in, in some ways, yes, but he could return if he wanted to. He had that right. I don't. I don't. Such is 
life, young lady, that if you stand up for certain values, you pay the price. But you ask yourself this question, aren't there certain things worth defending? Doesn't there come a time in one's life when you draw a line in the sand and say, this far and no further? A lot of people in Fiji would say to me, do say to me, look doc, what is the point? Why are you banging your head against the wall? You live in Australia. Let these buggers go to wherever they want to go. Don't bother. Don't waste your time. But I hear what they're saying, but you just can't turn away from violence and from abuse of human rights. Some people can do it, but I can't. You see? So there it is. Thanks for listening. I'm Guy Three by the Nathan. And I'm Mary Rose Abraham. Next time on Scrolls and Leaves. What does a shipwreck off the coast of Sri Lanka have to do with science fiction master Arthur C. Clarke? Tune in in two weeks to find out. Our sound designer is Nikhil Nagaraj. The storyteller is Sumit Kumar. This episode was produced by Guy Three, Mary Rose, with assistance from Iman Iftikhar, Sasha Samina, Alexa Stanga. You were listening to Scrolls and Leaves in collaboration with the archives at the National Center for Biological Sciences. Our thanks to Bridge Lal, Padmalal, Umit Bali, Sudesh Mishra. And shout out to listener Thana Trivedi for letting us know Sudesh's poetry. Thanks to our episode supporters, the Yale Mellon Sawyer Seminar, the Order of Multitudes, Atlas Encyclopedia Museum, and Anjana Badrinarayana of NCBS. For more information and past episodes, visit scrollsandleaves.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter at scrollsleaves, or on Instagram at scrollsandleaves, or like us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.